And how was Brenda during all this? I mean, I cannot imagine. This is her sister. She doesn't know what's going on. Her dad might, I mean, was she realizing that something might be going on with her folks? No, not, not, in, the, not in the beginning. But over the years and the way things happened, and I don't think she ever really, until the day her mother disappeared, I don't think that she really thought that her mom killed her sister. But after when Trudy disappeared, I pretty much closed the book on that. Especially, especially when we left Florida so that we could go someplace safe where I felt protected to even report her missing. First place we went was uh, over to Old Town, Florida, to Trudy's father's house. And he's an old man at this point, right? He don't get out and hardly do anything. But he, he, he told us, I sit right here at this table all day long, watching planes fly over, just waiting for that son of a bitch to drop a bomb on me. Now, why would Steve Snedder, why would that old man be sitting there worried Steve Snedder's going to drop a bomb on him from the air? He has to, he has to have felt severely guilty over something. Yeah. Well, and so. and rega- and related to that, um, Munden's theory was that he may have had something to do with disposing of Laura's body. Is that right? That is correct. As as do I. Because look, he was there for two days. And nobody ever saw him. Nobody ever knew until a long time after. How that, old uh, was he when she went missing? How old was her grandfather when Laura went missing? Oh, man, he had to be, he had to be in his 70s. You thought, you think a 70-year-old man would have done that? No, he had to help her. You thought he would help her? He he had a guy who used to hang out with him, to go and and do everything that the old man would, like, they they wanted trees cut down in their yard, which I could have done that. That's what I was doing at the time. But they brought... Uh, Trudy's dad over from Ohio and he brought with him this guy Peanut and every time the old man would come over from Ohio Peanut would be with him what was Peanut's real name? I have no idea (laughs) but you're saying (laughs) you're saying if you think if uh, Trudy's dad flew into town you know in the shadow of night at her behest to come help her get rid of Laura's body that he would have brought Peanut with him? Because he was seventy something, right? The, I mean, what was his last oh, name? Yeah. Romans? Is that? Is he? Romans. Okay. Lawrence Romans, senior. So that was the theory about how her body. So was the theory? I mean, what were they thinking? That, I mean, do you think her body was moved more than once, or do you think she was put in one place and that's it? No, I think. I think. I think her body was moved. I don't. I, and I think it was after the harvest. And just right prior to the field being opened up, somewhere, somewhere in between harvest and the man coming to open this field up. But what I'm saying is, in that interim between August and October, where was her body? I don't know. So you think she might have been somewhere else, held somewhere else, her body somewhere else? Yeah, yeah, I think she was moved there to be found. To so, be found? Yeah. Yeah, Trudy, what, Trudy ain't gonna leave her daughter. She's gonna want to put her in a grave somewhere, you know? If Trudy's even responsible for it. Right. 
right? Yeah. So I'm saying, you know, look, windows open here, now we can go put her here. She will be found when this guy comes back to open this field up. It's just so amazing. It is amazing to me that if it was an accident and there was that that fight that she wouldn't have just called the hospital. Like, what would what would keep her from doing that? What would keep Trudy from doing that? I don't know. Astor, Florida is a bump on the map north of Orlando between Daytona Beach and Silver Springs, along Highway 40 on the St. Johns River. Its population hovers just shy of 1,500 people. If you like fishing and boating and not much else, Astor, Florida is the place for you. You can while away countless decades, slapping flies from your sunburnt shoulders as your pontoon boat hums ever so gently across the dead calm water of the St. John's River. And you can do this almost year-round, given the perpetual Florida sun. I spent many a weekend on the St. John's with my family. We'd pack up a cooler fill a few bags with snacks and sunscreen, and follow my aunt and uncle and cousins with our vehicles towing boats behind them. Guys, I don't know if you're familiar with what a manatee is, but it's the biggest thing that I've ever been in the water with while not being afraid I was going to get swallowed whole. They are aptly called sea cows, and these things are basically just big, gray, floating blobs. They get about 10 or 15 feet long, and they weigh somewhere around a ton. One of the things that I remember most about boating on the St. John's River was the strict enforcement of slow boat traffic in certain areas due to the manatee activity. Many a time I recall hopping out of the boat and running up to one of the public bathrooms in the parks along the river, only to see a photocopied notice pinned to an information board or a kiosk with a picture of a manatee with gashes along its back, accompanied by a stern warning to boaters that they, and only they, could save the manatees from extinction. It used to make me so sad every time I would see one of those posters. What monsters human beings are, my little prepubescent brain would think. Why do people have to go so fast when the signs clearly say no wake? Anyway, all you have to do is look at that big, silly, sweet, sloped face to know that the manatee is perhaps one of the kindest things in the universe. With its fat back flipper and two shorter ones in the front, and everything in between is this big, round mass of lovin'. I was lucky enough to meet one of these gentle giants at Blue Springs, inside the state park of the same name, which you can access off the St. John's River. We went there on a lot of our boat trips. Dad would slide the boat up to the dock, and either me or my sister would grab the rope and tie us off. We'd usually jump out and run ahead, with my parents yelling after us to wait and walk with them and they probably didn't even start bothering to yell after us until my sister almost stepped on a water moccasin one day. I'm pretty sure my uncle grabbed my sister by the shirt and lifted her up into the air just in time. But I don't recall it being a traumatic event, so we probably just scuttled around it as we took a little griping from our parents, probably something along the lines of, you are in their space, remember? The winding wood plank path up to the springs was long and scenic, with places to stop and look over the wood rails, and every so often there were these little plaques screwed into the handrails, which held information about the flora and the fauna and history of the area. Once you arrived, the walkway opened up to hover above a large spring and a swimming hole. 
Only once do I recall arriving to realize that the manatees had filtered into the swimming area. It was the most amazing thing to see. These big blobby creatures surrounded by little kids in brightly colored swimsuits, toddlers bobbing with their swimmies and kicking their legs. I was shocked at how close they were. The walk to the springs was quite a hike, so by the time you arrived, you were pretty happy to hop into the brisk water and cool off. Then we let the current slowly float us back down to the other end from whence we'd come. Us kids usually brought our snorkels and kicked our finned feet along with the current, which, as I recall, produced a speed that felt superhuman at the time. Sometimes we floated down in tubes. The water was so clear you could see everything below, but with a mask on, it was like another world. I once found an Indian arrowhead while snorkeling down from the springs, and I ended up giving it to the little historical museum that housed exhibits in another spot that we went to a lot on the St. John's River called Hontoon Island. That's where we'd usually stop for lunch, because they had a little picnic pavilion and swings for the kids. There was also this tower that you could climb, as I recall. The point of this little trip down Jenny's memory lane is to give you an idea of the area. The St. John's River is the longest river in Florida. At 310 miles long, you can put in just about anywhere along there and travel for miles and miles. The river itself flows into numerous lakes, and its widest area is about three miles across. There's also marshy areas where boats can't really navigate, and the St. John's and its shores are home to all manner of wildlife, including alligators. Steve Snedeker wasn't out on his boat on June 17, 1985 where we're going to take up our story right now. But his house was perched on a canal off the St. John's River. Oh, he had one. A boat, that is. And that will come into the story a bit later. But today is about threats against neighbors and Steve getting shot at. Not necessarily in that order. And to catch us up with the timeline, Steve's daughter Laura, her case was long gone cold. And so had the cases of Tony Lambert and Chuck Smith. The Snedeker family had established another oil recycling business called North Florida Oil, and their lives were all chugging right along. Steve's doing whatever it is that Steve does, probably to include skimming and tax evading and who the hell knows what else. When on this day, he calls the police to tell them that he was opening the main gate to the yard at North Florida Oil when he heard two gunshots come from the woods on the south side of State Road 40 across from his building. Steve told police that he heard bullets whizzing past him, so he ran behind the fence and looked for the suspect in the woods across the road, but he couldn't see anyone. He said that he was the only one at the business at the time of the incident and that nothing was hit by the shots. The deputy who responded checked the wooded area around the business but was unable to locate any evidence. No footprints and no paths through the heavy brush, which would indicate that someone had made their way through there. The deputy also checked with employees at a local auto parts store nearby, but nobody there had heard any shots. And then he met with a man named Mr. Weaver on Alco Road, who said that he had heard two gunshots on the day in question, but he didn't see anyone or any vehicles. About a month later, Steve went into the operations center of the Lake County Sheriff's Department, and he requested that they document some more information that he believed was related in case something happened to him. He told police that he'd been out of state doing some investigating of his own and that he had hired a couple people out of North Carolina to find out 
who had fired shots at him. According to Snedeker, someone named Ed had been in his driveway several times, and another man named Woody out of North Carolina had been hired by Tony McCullough of Newcastle for $25,000 to kill him. He said that he hired Gary Stafford of Rochester, North Carolina, to watch Tony McCullough. Snedeker insisted that he didn't know why a contract had been put out on him unless it had something to do with his daughter's death. Now remember, at the very beginning of this story in episode one, I told you that there were two Tonys associated with this story. Tony McCullough is the second Tony. He and Tony Lambert had tried and failed to purchase Steve Snedeker's oil business in Indiana, but they couldn't get financing because Steve refused to open up the books to anyone, including the bank, so they couldn't get the loan. Some four years after Laura's murder, it appears that Steve is still trying to shake people down for information about his daughter's death. Unless it's for some other reason, with Steve Snedeker, any and all of his motives could be, and usually were, about self-preservation. I have no other explanation for why it's at this time, so many years after Laura's case has gone cold, that Steve does what he does, but let me begin by saying that his entire story about that shooting was a crock of shit, okay? And I can only assume that Steve's motivation for going to the sheriff in the first place was to cover his ass and distract from what he himself did. What I can tell you for sure was that just after the alleged shooting incident, police had North Florida oil under surveillance. Maybe because of Steve's allegations, or perhaps they had never stopped keeping an eye on him. But I do have handwritten police notes logging the comings and goings of vehicles to the business in this time period. So here's what really happened. Tony McCullough gets a telephone call at his Indiana home from a guy who says he's been hired to kill him. But if he'd like to pay him more than the guy who hired him, Tony could stay among the land of the living. Obviously, Tony McCullough is fond of living, so he says, sure, okay, how much? They negotiate a price, Tony hangs up, and then wisely calls the FBI. You see, Tony is intimately aware of how people in Steve Snedeker's life go missing, and I'm fairly certain he'd put two and two together and come up with Snedeker. Gary Stafford, the alleged hitman in question, demanded $10,000. The FBI jumped right on it, and Stafford ended up doing two years in federal prison for extortion. What the FBI believed was that Stafford was hired through an ad in Soldier of Fortune magazine by a man from Florida to get rid of a guy that the man thought was involved in the death of his daughter. He got 5000 up front and was to get 20000 after McCullough was dead. But Stafford said that he offered to allow McCullough to live if he paid him $10,000. So Stafford took money from Steve, probably with no intention of killing anyone because that's some hard time, right? And then he tries to get more money from McCullough. Still, this did start as a plot to kill someone. Unfortunately, what the FBI could prove was the extortion part, so that's what Gary Stafford did time for. There is some inside baseball on this incident in the report of Lake County Sheriff's Department investigator Lynn Wagner, and we are going to want to get real familiar with his name because he is the law enforcement officer who has now grabbed the baton from John Munden and he's running with it in the second half of this saga. On September 9th, 1985, 
Investigator Lynn Wagner wrote this. I've had numerous contacts with FBI agent Glenda Knoll at the Ocala office regarding this case. It seems as if an arrest was made of a subject, Gary Stafford, by the FBI for four counts of extortion, the victim being Tony McCullough. Stafford is a private investigator and an ex-New York policeman. Snedeker hired Stafford for $25,000 to find out who shot at him in Astor on June 17, 1985. Stafford told Snedeker that Tony McCullough hired Woody Lockman of North Carolina to kill him for $25,000, and that's who was seen in Astor several times. Agent Knoll should be receiving a report from the FBI shortly. Until that time, I am unsure of the players in this and on whose side they are playing. It does appear that the oil refinery business has an underground war going on, which started years ago. Bless his heart. Wagner was only just tipping a toe into the sea of dysfunction that would soon begin to rise around him. The Snedeker family trajectory would, like water, seek its own level, with everyone involved ending up waiting in dark, murky territory, similar to the famous ship whose deck chairs rose with the water level as the band played on. I do want to mention something regarding the FBI stuff. I sent a FOIA request for all things Snedeker, but because of COVID-19, these requests, particularly the larger ones, are being filled so slowly that by the time frame I was given that I will likely receive the approximately 1,200 pages I've been told that the feds have on Snedeker, I can probably grow out my hair down to my ass. I'll get them eventually, although probably not in time for the conclusion of this season, but that will be a fun update episode for you guys nonetheless. So, now let's get to that threatening of the neighbors thing that I mentioned earlier. Sorry about the tangent. This case is riddled with those suckers. Most of the modest homes on Keith Street in Astor have tiny boathouses right off their backyards, which are all situated on a canal. They have a street out front and a canal out back, with the St. John's River a hop, skip, and a boat away. It does not appear that everyone on Keith Street felt a neighborly affection for the occupants of the Snedeker home. In October of 1985, Mr. Ralph Burkhart made a complaint with police in reference to a Doberman Pinscher owned by Steve and Trudy Snedeker. The report says that in the spring of 85, Trudy Snedeker bought two Dobermans to go with the one she already had. Shortly after this, the dogs started getting out of the gate of their chain-link fence and menacing the neighborhood. The report says that the dogs barked and caused disturbances day and night. It was so bad, in fact, that the problem had been reported several times by a number of neighbors on Keith Street as well as a neighboring street. One neighbor had his daughter and two grandchildren down from Ohio over the summer, and on one occasion, when one of the children was walking to her aunt's house next to the Snedeker house, one of the Dobermans got out of the pen and ran into the road and started barking and growling at the child. A nearby neighbor heard the commotion and ran outside to witness the dog and the child who was running home screaming. The day before this latest incident was written up, Mr. Burkhart and another individual were mowing his lawn when one of the Dobermans came out of the yard across the street barking and growling at them, forcing the man into his backyard. He took shelter in his shed and had to shut the door. A sheriff's deputy was at the end of the street in his patrol vehicle at the time and witnessed the whole thing. 
Mr. Burkhart was heard to say that he would shoot the dog if it did that again. The next day, Mr. Burkhart and his wife ran into Steve and Trudy Snedeker at Jamie's restaurant on Highway 10. Trudy Snedeker told Mr. Burkhart that if he killed her dog for any reason, she would kill him. Steve made sure to add that Trudy had a 357 Magnum and a permit to carry. I just want to circle back and make sure that you guys took note of the sheriff's deputy in the patrol vehicle at the end of the street. This does not appear to me to be an area that any small town agency would be wasting resources patrolling willy-nilly. It is a very quiet, out-of-the-way neighborhood in the middle of nowhere, and I'm guessing the reason for his presence that day was one Steve Snedeker. But at this time, not a lot was going on, at least as far as the Laura Morris case. In the summer of 1987, back in Hancock County, John Munden was made chief deputy. And not long after that, Trudy Snedeker went missing in Florida. The thing is, none of Trudy's kids thought it might be a good idea to mention that to police for like a year. Fast forward now, Steve still thinks the Tonys had something to do with it. They moved to Florida. Um, They're in Florida. And when you get to Florida... You get there a little bit later than the uh, what the other family, right? Before they had any homes down there, I was in Florida before they had actually purchased a home anywhere. What were you doing? Yeah, because at, at first we were all living in motels. For how long? Uh, well, we did for about two weeks before uh, we got a house in Port Orange, Brenda and I. And it was probably, I don't know, another two weeks or a month after that that Stephen Charity bought the property in Astor on Keith Street. Mm-hmm. And then after they bought that house, and they bought the house next door, and they bought Joe's house, and then they bought uh, the house on Bobcat Road. And all throughout that time, we were building the oil plant in Florida. All right, so then everyone settled down there, and... How were things going? I mean, there's a couple years in there before she goes missing, right? There's a couple years. Yeah. How were how are things between everybody during that time period? Yes. I mean, we live right on the St. Johns River, so we did a lot of fishing, okay? A whole lot of fishing. A whole lot of work, too. And, uh, but for the most part, everybody got along. But not always. There were still times when we'd argue. I mean, Steve Kingley actually had his hands on my throat at one point. When we were living next door to him. Yeah. I think it's because Brenda and I were talking about moving back north at that time. I don't know. Were you, I don't remember. Were you still in contact with Munden during this time? Oh, yeah. And did was he still working on the case behind the scenes? I know at some point he had to right. retire. Yeah, but it, was, it was behind the scenes. So he was still interested, and probably, right. but there wasn't... Yeah, by, re- this time, by this time, he, he was made captain of the sheriff's department. And did he ever come down to Florida to, to um, talk to Steve or interview anybody there before Trudy went missing? No. I don't remember him ever being there. So things were sort of cold on the case at that point. There wasn't yeah. anything really going yeah. on until... All right, so tell Absolutely. me tell me what you remember, as much as you can remember, about when Trudy, the last time you saw Trudy... 
want to know what I remember most about the last time I saw Trudy? Yeah. They left in the van, okay? They had a white Chevy van. And they pulled out of the driveway. Trudy was in the passenger seat. And they headed north on Q Street, headed toward uh, 40, right? Going dancing, I think, or something over in Daytona. The, the, just the look on her face, on Trudy's face, instantly made me go back to the look on Laura's face when they left our apartment that night to go home to Greenfield the night she came up missing. Hmm. I mean, that is almost an identical look. I felt like something was wrong at that point, you know? I mean, immediately. You know, something weird going on there. And then when she don't come back home and Bernie goes to the house the next day and and, and, and there's mom's purse right there. She didn't leave without her purse. She left without her purse on purpose. She did that because I think she knew I was getting ready to have to at that point. And I think it was Tammy that told me, it might have been Brenda though too, because Trudy confided in them that she'd wake up from time to time with a gun to her head. And Steve would be holding a gun to her head. Yeah. But here's the question I have. So you see them and they drive away. Then the next day you're over at the house and suddenly they're not there. And how is Steve acting at that moment? Oh, he was distraught. Crying, upset. What did he say happened? He cut cut it off. Oh, he said that she left with some black guy. He said that? Yeah. She left with a black man. He (laughs) He said she left the bar with a black man? Well, she left with a black man, whether it's from a bar or wherever. I don't, I don't recall him ever saying where she left from. But what I don't understand is if the last time you saw them, they were headed to a bar. Didn't anybody say, what do you mean? You, were, you went dancing. What happened? Uh, Jenny, I'm sure that that conversation did come up or a question came up. But listen, Steve Snedger wasn't, the, and here's probably... Brenda didn't do too much of it either because of the way the boys the boys wouldn't say a goddamn word to their dad. They wouldn't say a word to him crossways. I, I was the one who normally if something was said, I'm the one that spoke up. <laughs> hmm. And so she she left her purse just like Laura had. Here's my question. I was told that she always carried a gun in her purse. Were you did you know that to be true? Yep. Yep. So if she felt something was wrong when she got in that car, I mean, obviously she got in the car of her own volition. Did you guys see him drag her into that car? No, no. Oh, no. So she got no, into the car. She got, she got in of her own free will. And she did so, if you, if if what you're saying is true, left her purse on purpose, why would she leave her only means of protection, that gun in her purse? We don't, we don't know that, that she did, because I don't, I don't think the gun was ever found in her purse. I know she used to carry one, and it just so happens, just so happens, is a fucking twenty-five caliber, same thing that was used to put the bullets in Laura's head. And you think a twenty-five caliber, you can put that anywhere. Right. You know, you don't got to have a purse for that. And if they're going to a bar, maybe that's a reason not to carry a purse to. Maybe, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the look on, on Trudy's face when they left, that could have been just my own interpretation and that wasn't the case at all yeah you know? but she sure had a it, it was a it was like her head was turning looking at Brenda and I as she's going down the road like she's taking her last look you know yeah it, it's just weird 
and that could be because after the fact too, she never came back. You know, it makes me feel that way. Yeah, know. it could be. That's true. So, what happens next? You tell you told me that at some point you guys left town. When? How soon did you leave town? Pardon? When did you guys leave town after that? <clears throat> well, here's what happened. Us, all of us kids would get together and we'd talk about this and say, hey, look, guys, somebody's got a report. Reporter missed. And Joe kept keeping us all at bay saying, I'm, I'm going to do it. I've been talking to the, I've been talking to the, to the sheriff's office and I'm, I'm going to handle it. I'm going to handle it. I'm going to handle it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. And he's the oldest one, so we're going to let him. He's the one that should be standing up to his dad. But it never happened. It never happened. It never happened. It never happened. And Brendan and I couldn't last another day without doing it. That I wasn't going to report her nowhere to nobody in Florida. I was going to come home. I was going to report her missing to John London. Well, when I got here, John London was in the hospital having emergency surgery on his on kidney stones. All right, they about killed him. So I couldn't go talk to John and do it. I wasn't going to trust nobody else except my uncle, who was the chief of police in Beach Grove, Indiana, and that's where I went and reported Trudy missing. So how long so, after Trudy went missing, did you guys pack up? I don't up? know. It, hey, I would say at least six months. Oh, so it wasn't like the next day or anything? Oh, no, no. It was months? No, this was, it was months. Okay. Yeah, I mean, they, 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 I was asked, well, where's my uncle and by everybody else? Well, why'd you wait so long? Well, it's like this, people. I'm sleeping every night with a goddamn shotgun on my lap in my living room. <laughs> and I'm sick and tired of it. So that's why I'm doing it now. You know? Yeah. That's we were being told. We were being told by Joe, well, I'm going to handle it. I'm going to handle it. I'm going to handle it. And he never did. And I was literally sleeping every night in my recliner in my front room with a shotgun on my lap. Interesting. So... So I, I couldn't take that no more. I just couldn't. Brenda couldn't either. So we decided we're we're, we're out here. We're going to go report her missing. So that's at the point where everybody, even Brenda, is on board. Like, some, Steve probably did this. This is, you know, this is... Oh, no, we already knew it beforehand. We all felt that beforehand. Did the boys know, too? Yeah. So when they you guys were... Their mom did run off with a black guy. Not that there's anything wrong with that if she did, other than, you know... Not telling nobody. I mean, I'm not a prejudiced person. No, but I mean, <laughs> there, yeah, she should. But, yeah, there would be something odd with leaving your whole family and not calling anyone back. Let's be honest. So, so the boys, right. even everybody, all the siblings, every one of you, were in, talking behind the scenes, and all in agreement that something was wrong. But, but Joe was saying he was going to handle it, and he never. Yep. He was putting and it he off. Just never did. It does appear that John Munden was contacted in late 1986 by the Florida Department of Law Enforcement, and that was because Trudy's father started wondering why he had not heard from his daughter, so he started to ask questions, and then he ended up reporting her missing to an agency outside of the jurisdiction where she went missing. Danny and Brenda hot-footed it out of Florida, and eventually they would file a formal missing person report for Trudy Snedeker. In May of 87, John Munden reached out to Lake County, Florida, Sheriff's Investigator Lynn Wagner and said that the two were finally willing to do it. They had cited fear of Steve Snedeker as the reason they had waited so long. 
Danny and Brenda called Wagner from Munden's office, and he took a formal report over the phone, and Trudy's information was then entered into FCIC and NCIC. But it's clear that Munden had had contact with Wagner prior to the date that they made their official report with Florida law enforcement, because about three weeks before that, Lynn Wagner caught up with Steve Snedeker at Blair's Jungle Den in Astor at 9 a.m. in the morning. Blair's Jungle Den is a fish camp perched at the end of a thin canal that begins in a rural area of Astor and dumps into a larger winding canal that eventually empties into the St. John's River. The motel rooms boast old wood paneling, circa the 70s, with furniture to match, and beds covered with blankets that you can almost feel by looking at the picture. The kind with the faux quilting that you could dump a gallon of anything from water to various bodily fluids onto, and said liquid wouldn't break the surface of its synthetic sheen. There's a restaurant at the fish camp, so I imagine that's where Snedeker and Wagner faced off across the table bright and early that morning to discuss Steve's missing wife, the one who'd been missing for about a year. Lynn Wagner said that Steve was not at all surprised that his ex-wife's relatives had been, quote, stirring the pot, just because she wants to go off and be her own person, he said. Steve told Wagner that the last time Trudy was in Astor was at the end of July or the beginning of August in 1986, and at that time, she was using her maiden name of Romans. Steve said Trudy told him she left so that she could start over. Since their divorce, Steve said Trudy would come by now and then and stay with him. He didn't know where she was living. He said the last time she visited him, Trudy took his Lincoln Town car to the Orlando airport to fly to Tallahassee. He had to pick it up three days later. Steve owed Trudy some money and she called wanting it at the end of September or the beginning of October of 1986, according to him. He said he met Trudy at Kettle's Restaurant at the intersection of I-10 and Highway 27 near Tallahassee in October of 1986, and she had two white males with her, but did not introduce them to Steve. He said she was driving a brand new light blue topaz with a temporary tag, and that he gave her the money he owed her and left. The last contact that Steve said he ever had with Trudy was between the 15th and 20th of December in 1986, and she had just called to talk. He insisted that in the course of their 31-year marriage, Trudy had done the disappearing act 20 to 30 times for periods of up to three weeks. At the end of that meeting, at the behest of John Munden, Wagner told Steve he wanted him to take a polygraph. Steve refused. So there they were again. No body, no crime scene, nothing specific that even indicated foul play. The case of Trudy Snedeker didn't go anywhere for a long while, but that didn't mean that things weren't going on behind the scenes. In a May 1987 article, the now chief John Munden said he was headed to Chillicothe, Ohio, again, to speak with family members. He cited new developments in the case, and those new developments may well have been Trudy Snedeker going missing. It wouldn't be until two years later, in 1989, that things suddenly sped to a rapid clip when police learned that Steve Snedeker had terminal cancer. It had to feel like a race against the clock at that point for investigators, both in Indiana and Florida. Everybody was well aware that if Steve Snedeker died, the answers that they sought in multiple missing persons cases would disappear forever into the ether. 
Tony Lambert, Chuck Smith, and a guy named James Wilkes, who there was even less information on than the others, but who was at one time called Steve's right-hand man. If Steve Snedeker died before coughing up the details on these men and his missing wife, none of their cases would ever be resolved. On September 2, 1989, at about 8.30 in the evening, investigator Lynn Wagner went to Steve Snedeker's home on Keith Street in Astor. He noted that, as usual, the sliding glass doors were answered by Wanda Bowling, or Snedeker, she said. Family rumors indicated that the two had gotten married. The locking, sliding steel door required key entry only on both sides, which feels like a rather rash set of security measures for a tiny little town like Astor. Wagner told Wanda he wanted to see Steve, but she said he didn't feel well. Wagner gave Wanda his home number and asked Steve to call him the next morning, which was a Sunday. At approximately 10 a.m. on Sunday morning, Steve called Investigator Wagner and agreed to have coffee with him at a local restaurant. Steve asked, is there a problem? And Wagner was purposely vague. He just said it was personal. The two men had coffee for about two hours that afternoon. As soon as Wagner saw him, it was clear that Steve was not well, based on his appearance, compared to what he had seen several months earlier. They sat down and ordered coffee and started a conversation. Wagner kept it light, and they discussed a lot of topics that didn't pertain to police matters until, eventually, Wagner told Steve that he had heard about his cancer, and he knew that it was serious. Steve didn't seem surprised. I can picture him slowly stirring his coffee as Wagner tells him that it might be time to clear up some questions related to his involvement in a few police cases. Steve says that he trusts Wagner, but he can't be sure of the consequences if he says too much. The last thing that Steve wanted to do was spend what little time he had left in jail. Steve said to Wagner, I'll tell you what, I'll take some time and I'll write down the stuff you want to know, and anything else I can remember, and I'll give it to my lawyer. He'll give it to you when I die. Wagner grudgingly agreed because he couldn't get Steve to agree to anything else. At that time, he felt that there was a remote possibility that Steve was serious and that it didn't seem to be his usual delay tactic. Over the next several weeks, Wagner kept in contact with Snedeker and with Munden. About two weeks after that meeting is when John Munden sat down with Indiana State Police Supervisor Sergeant John Mann and Herb Clear for that long debrief interview that you heard in the previous episode. Two days later, Sheriff Knupp of the Lake County Sheriff's Office was contacted by Sheriff Nick Gulling of Hancock County. It was finally decided that all parties involved should get together along with the Indiana State Police investigators and form a strategy about where to go from there. Unfortunately, Hurricane Hugo delayed this until the following week, but as soon as the weather cleared, Lynn Wagner and Sergeant Morris left for Greenfield, Indiana. Their first meeting was with John Munden and Dave Scott. They spoke for several hours. The next day, bright and early at 9 a.m., there was a meeting at the Hancock County Sheriff's Office. During the six-hour meeting, several plans were discussed to try and resolve all of the cases surrounding Steve Snedeker. Later, John Munden took Lynn Wagner to the Shadeland Drive address where Laura went missing, and then they drove to the Shelby County cornfield where her body was found eight months later. Having gathered a good rundown of all the important details that had occurred in the years prior, Wagner and Morrison headed back to Florida 
armed with a shitload of backstory related to their investigation into the case of missing person Trudy Snedeker. While they were on that trip in Indiana, a subpoena was issued to Tampa General for Steve Snedeker's medical records in an effort to understand the severity of his diagnosis. At this same time, Prosecutor Terry Snow, who was the prosecuting attorney in the 18th Circuit Court for the state of Indiana, typed a letter to Steve Snedeker, granting him use immunity from prosecution in Hancock County, Indiana, at the request of Indiana law enforcement, for information provided by him concerning the disappearance of Laura Morris. This immunity, the document said, will protect you from prosecution, which could result from information that you provide or information derived from statements made by you concerning the disappearance of Laura Morris. It was granted and would remain active until October 15, 1989. They were giving Steve a little under three weeks to act. During the same time frame, two Indiana State Police detectives, Bruce and Mann, headed to Florida for a weekend and made numerous efforts to talk to Steve Snedeker. They had agreed that they would try to meet with him without revealing that they had had any contact with Lynn Wagner in the hopes of maintaining the rapport that Wagner had seemingly developed with Steve. Their strategy was to try to talk about Laura's death in 1981 and then work in the other cases, if at all possible, including Trudy's case. If this didn't work, Wagner would then try to reestablish contact with Steve. In his usual manner, Steve Snedeker acted like he wanted to cooperate, but he used his illness and other excuses to keep putting them off. On September 30th, Steve allowed the two ISP investigators inside the house to talk with him and Wanda. At that time, he said he knew who killed Laura and that he was very disappointed that John Munden had not solved the case. He said that at one time, two people involved in Laura's killing had come back to the house to get something that they had left behind. He said that John Munden did not even write down the license number on their vehicle. Snedeker said he'd tell them who killed Laura, but he didn't want to do it with Wanda present. And then he said he didn't feel well, and he talked with him the next day. When the investigators returned the next day, they were met at the door by Wanda, who said that Steve was too sick to talk to them that day and they should come back tomorrow. When they arrived the next day, Steve wasn't at home. But after about five minutes, he drove up. At that point, he got out and he said there'd been a curve thrown in. He'd just talked to his daughter, Brenda, and she told him something she wasn't supposed to. Brenda said that she got a phone call from John Munden, who told her that the Indiana State Police were there to investigate cocaine. Snedeker said that Munden had given Brenda their names, and she seemed to know all about the investigation. Then he said he'd rather fly to Indiana and meet with them at the office of Jim Brand, his attorney. He said if they would do that, he would give them the names of those who killed Laura. I still want to cooperate with you, but I got to go to Indiana. You two leave now and head back there and I'll be there on Wednesday. And if you call my attorney, we'll talk. Lynn Wagner got a call from John Munden right after that, saying that Brenda had contacted him and she wanted to talk to Sergeants Mann and Bruce. Later that evening, Wagner, Mann, and Bruce met Brenda at a Hardy's restaurant in Umatilla, Florida. Brenda didn't want her father to know about the meeting. She said Steve told her not to talk to them and told her to go with her husband, this is the new husband, on the oil truck to the Ocala area. Brenda said that Steve basically bribed her by saying that if she didn't talk to them, 
he would sign all of the business and the property over to her by Friday. Brenda left that meeting and agreed to meet them the next day at Bob Evans' restaurant in Ocala. This wasn't the first time that Steve had offered a bribe in order to get something that he wanted. That was actually his M.O. We got divorced, like, in 89, June of 89. And uh, she, Brenda called him one day. We were struggling in Indiana, and Brenda picked up the phone and called him and uh, asked him for help, okay? And he said, this, and this, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to let you kick your inheritance that in order for you to get it, you got to divorce Danny and you got to move back to Florida. And that is exactly what Brenda did. And she inherited the oil company there, two pieces of property there, a piece of property over in Old Town, and uh, all the oil company vehicles and, and like another three or four million in cash. Danny... And, uh, anyway. Wow, he was a monster. What a what a piece of shit he was. I'm wondering why I'm not dead. Yeah, I mean, I am too. <laughs> I mean, you know. I walk back in the after. That's where I go to pick my girls up because I get them after Christmas for a week. And then I get them for two weeks in the summertime. And, but I rode in there to ask her to pick them up one time and I'm at the gas station. And one of the local town people, his name's uh, Huey Soul, he, he pulls up to the gas pumps next to me, and he looks out his window and says, I'll be goddamn Danny Shellis. And I said, yeah, how you doing, Huey? And uh, he said, I'm doing okay. I don't, uh, I can't believe you're still alive. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, well, thanks. <laughs> so far, so good. <laughs> it does seem like around this time, Brenda had finally decided to go all in. But it's also clear that she was scared as hell. The following interview had this written at the top. Note, there should be no mention of the name of the following source, as it is almost a sure fact that they will be killed if it is known by Steve Snedeker that any cooperation with authorities was even attempted. It appears that during this meeting, Brenda was making phone calls to keep tabs on where Steve was. Around noon, he was in Astor, Florida. I cannot imagine how scared she was. She probably was worried that she had been followed to the meeting. But then, the floodgates opened. Brenda told the investigators that she believed her father killed her mother. She said that she believed Tony Lambert was also killed by her father. But she said that Trudy had told her that Steve had killed Lambert and that Lambert admitted that he and Tony McCullough had Laura killed. Brenda said that she thought Steve was also responsible for the death of Chuck Smith. Quote, because Smith had a big mouth and he had made accusations about Laura being involved in drugs and sexual perversions. Brenda said that her brother had been told by Trudy four or five days before her disappearance that she had been awakened with Steve pointing a gun at her head. Brenda believed that her dad killed her mom because she was going to tell law enforcement officials things about his involvement in criminal matters. Brenda said the last time she saw her mom, she and Steve were dressed up to go to a place called Finky's. As she remembers it, her mom didn't take her purse, and she said she didn't need it because Steve had plenty of money. Brenda said she saw her mom put a small gun, possibly a 25, in her bra, where she always carried it. Cut to the next morning when she went to work, 
she found her father sitting in his office crying. He told Brenda that Trudy had left him, so Brenda then got on the phone and called her brothers. Brenda said they both came down to the office and they talked, and they all agreed that Steve had probably done something to their mother. Brenda said that about two days later, her older brother Joe went out in a boat with Steve, and it was Joe's opinion that together they had thrown a body out of the boat on the Ocloaha River. Brenda said her brother asked Steve, is that our mom? And he said, no, it's someone else. Brenda then said that she believes a man named William or Bill Regan, a longtime friend of Steve, helped get rid of Trudy. She said that a few days after Trudy disappeared, Regan and a tall skinny man from Chillicothe, Ohio, showed up and they were driving an old junker car. She believes that they were paid by Steve to get rid of Trudy's body. Brenda told the investigators that on the first day her mother was missing, Steve took her outside and showed her a large sum of money in the trunk of the Mercedes. Steve told her there was $1 million and that in the event that someone came to get him, meaning police, she was to use that money to bail him out. She said that within a week or so of when Trudy went missing, Steve wouldn't go in the house at all and he sent her in to clean the place up. She took approximately three carloads of Trudy's stuff from the house and then she saw the gun that belonged to her mother laying on the floor in the bedroom. She didn't touch it. She didn't even want her father to know that she had seen it. But she said that her mom's purse wasn't there, although she did see some things that had been inside of the purse, a small camera and some other jewelry that she knew was in the purse, but the purse itself was not there. Then Brenda told them that she thought her father had a couple of bodies buried under the cement driveway or the patio of his house. She didn't know who they might be. She did note that a former associate of her father, James Wilkes, had also disappeared, and she said that he and Steve were very close in 1981, back in Indianapolis, but that's all she knew about him. I want to interject here that in the handwritten case notes, it looks like Steve was asked by the investigators about James Wilkes. The note says that Steve had talked to Wilkes for like three hours on one occasion, and that Wilkes had told him he wanted to leave his wife and kids. A quote from Steve on that note said conveniently, Some people do walk off. Also, in one of his interviews with police, Joe Snedeker, the eldest boy, said that Wilkes had come to Florida a few months after they moved there looking for a job and that he disappeared after that. After the Lord disappeared, mm -hmm. we went to go find James Wilkes and I was with John when he did it. We went to the hotel where uh, his wife and kid were, but there was no James. <laughs> okay, wait a minute. When, this After Laura went missing, you and Steve went to that hotel to find no. him? Munden and I did. Oh, you and Munden went there. Okay, to yeah. to find him. And this was how soon after Laura went missing? Uh, I don't know, in a couple months. Do you remember the name of the hotel? No. There's, it's, it's a little motel. I mean, it's, I mean if you blink, you're going to miss the whole town. It's gotcha. not really even a town. It's the only place that there was. So you. Other than homes, there were homes around. And why was Munden going to look for him in the first place? Because nobody had talked to him, and he matched the description that Chuck Smith gave of the guy that was at the gas station that Laura was. That he Laura seemed to be afraid of. Oh, so you you thought he was the one that could have been him? That's why you yes. were. What you guys went over there in the first yeah. place? Yes. Oh. Okay, and when you got there, you found it. And so, 
was a was um munden able to track down anything else on wilkes at all i mean or did the trail just run cold he he, he just disappeared the next thing brenda told them was hard to fathom she said that about a month before her mother's disappearance trudy told her that she wanted to talk about something very personal her mom told her that if she saw some photos of her and two black men involved in sexual activity that the photos were superimposed and it was not her Her mother said that she and Steve were being blackmailed, and if they didn't pay a large sum of money, the pictures would be plastered all over Aster. Brenda said that she talked to her brothers about this, and they said they'd seen the pictures, and they believed that they were authentic. Brenda told police that she didn't believe that her brothers would cooperate with them in any way, because Steve had probably involved them in criminal activity, and if they did, they would implicate themselves. She also told police that both of her brothers had had attempts made on their lives. By that time in the interview, it was around 8 in the evening, and Brenda had called around and learned that Steve, who had been in Florida that afternoon, was now in Indiana at his son's residence. It wasn't known whether he took his own plane or if he had flown commercial, and his actual reason for going was also unknown. However, when Sergeants Mann and Bruce returned to Indiana after those interviews, they learned that Steve had been there, but he never made himself available to them and his lawyer, as he promised. Steve Snedeker was again evading police. Stay tuned.